Well, there are many promises uh, in the Bible, so good to cherish at times of difficulty and strength and hardship. Just wrote down a, a few of them. The Lord says, fear not, for I am with you. Isaiah 41.10, Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. John says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And these are just a few of dozens and dozens and dozens of of promises in the Bible that we can look to and can cling to. But we think about us as a church. One of the greatest promises that we have is found in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18. It says this. It says... I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus, of course, telling this to his disciples, that that in the midst of Peter confessing that Jesus is indeed the Christ, he promised him right away. He went from the, 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 the profession of who he was right to this fact about the church will prevail. It's a, it's a promise that Jesus has kept from the day he was crucified and purchased souls for his kingdom. Until this day, he continues his redemptive work throughout the world. He's been doing this. He has been building his church. This was future tense in Matthew. That was, that was when he's in his ministry before he even died upon the cross. But now he's continuing to build his church Now, it's not always how we would want it. It's not always according to our timetable. Things don't always go exactly our way. But Jesus is building his church, and on that promise we can rest. Well, that that promise there is the backdrop of our text this morning. Acts chapter 5, verses 33 through 42. You can open your Bibles there if you haven't already. In our text, we see the church at at one of those moments in life when it's, it's tenuous. It is uh, it's difficult and, and hard. And, and things were going well, though. They were, they, were, they were going really well. Thousands of people had repented of their sins and trusted in Christ. The, the church was united. They were, they were giving of their needs, uh, giving of their resource to meet the needs of others. They were loving one another. They were praying in a unified manner. The apostles were doing amazing miracles. Um, people were amazed at the Lord and all that, the God, all that God was doing in their midst. But it's difficult because the religious leaders were arrested. That is, the religious leaders um, of the apostles. The apostles were arrested by the Jewish religious leaders. And these apostles are now being held on trial. And, and I say it's sort of a tenuous time because we don't, didn't know, that they didn't know back then of how things would turn out. And there was a real danger that the apostles, who were the leaders of the early church, would be killed for their unauthorized teaching in the name of Jesus. This very same council these apostles are going to stand before, the very council that Jesus stood before, the council that condemned him to death upon a cross. And these disciples were threatened by the same verdict. And and if they were all put to death, think about the consequences. What, What would that mean for the church? Of course, Jesus would still be building his church. And whether they 
were killed or not. Now we know they weren't killed. They were beaten, as we will see today. But whether they were or not, the promise is true that Jesus is building his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. My message this morning is entitled, God's work will prevail. Now, people may try to stop the work of God, but in the end, it always prevails. It's the main point of what we see in our text this morning. The text begins in verse 33 with a verdict of court. Now, now you remember last week, my message was entitled, the, the, trial of, the Apostles on Trial. It's when we saw the apostles who were there as defendants, and we saw the Sanhedrin, the 70 people there, and the high priest, all as the prosecuting attorney coming down upon the apostles. And they put forth their case in chapter 5 and verse 28. They said, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet you fill Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles then answered this charge. They're being charged that, that the, the Sanhedrin had told them not to preach or speak at all in the name of Jesus, Acts 4, 18. But they were. They were filling Jerusalem with their blood. That's why the apostles were brought in, and they answered this charge with these words in verse 29 through 32. Peter and the apostles answered this way. We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Essentially, he says this. He says, you are right, O religious rulers. We have disobeyed your words to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. In fact, we have filled Jerusalem with this message of Jesus. And we hold you accountable because you killed him. But the reason we've done so is because we are obeying God. We must obey God rather than men. And to this response, the religious council was furious. We read in verse 33. Now, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care of what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him, and he too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this understanding is of men, it will fail. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow it. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. My first point comes in verse 33. We see 70 angry men. Seventy is the number of men who are in the council of Sanhedrin. And anger is described in verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill him. Literally, this word describes a being sawn in two. 
I mean, it it, it speaks about being ripped so deep in their heart that they were just stirring with rage, probably red in the face, probably getting anger, probably probably welling up within them. They wanted nothing more than to destroy those disciples right there and then on the spot. Now, the only other time this Greek word is used in the New Testament is in chapter seven and verse 54. This is in response to Stephen's sermon. We see the same thing. When they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. And soon afterwards, they stoned Stephen. These same emotions were there, ready to stone these apostles and ready to kill them. But know this, whether the council would have destroyed or killed the apostles or not, these 70 men cannot, could not prevail over God's work because God's work will prevail. And the question comes here, right? Why were they so angry? Why were they so enraged? What was it that caused them to, to get in this state? Well, let's, let's step back. Why is it that anybody gets angry? People get angry when they want something and can't get it. That's why people get angry. But they know from experience that if they can't get it, they know that if they raise their voice or if they make threats or if they display some physical strength, they might just get what they want. And over time, people have learned that that if they don't get what they want, people can be angry and do these things of force and, and will force people then to get what they want. Then they get what they want. That's how anger works. When a father doesn't get something he wants from his children, right, he raises the heat, hoping to overpower the children into doing whatever he says. When a husband doesn't get something he wants from his wife, he raises the heat, hoping to intimidate her into submission. When a boss doesn't get something he wants from his subordinates, he raises the heat, hoping to create some fear in his workers. They might work harder and please him next time so he doesn't get so mad at them. That's how anger works. When people get angry, there's a desire problem. They want what they want and they want it bad and they're willing to do whatever it takes in order to get that. And they've learned that raising the voice, inciting fear upon others is often a useful way to get what it is that they want. That's why people get angry. That's why people get enraged. That's why you get angry. You want something and you think by showing forth your strength, you can get it. Well, it's no different here with the religious leaders. They wanted something and his disciples stood in the way of getting it. So they were becoming angry with them. And what did they want? They wanted religious power. They didn't want anyone to get in the way of their influence. They didn't want anyone to upset their religious system. But these disciples were gaining influence in Jerusalem. There are many of those who used to attend the temple and go listen to the rabbis teach. But now they're attending the temple and they're turning left to go to Solomon's portico and listen to these apostles teach and preach about Jesus. They're losing their power. They're losing their influence. And they hated it. And they were jealous. That's why they arrested the apostles in the first place. If you look back in chapter 5 and verse 17, it says the high priest rose up and he was filled with jealousy. And the whole party of the Sadducees filled with jealousy, right? They they wanted what they have. And so that's why they brought the apostles in and put them in the public prison. And as this trial bore on, they saw the apostles weren't budging. So even if you look at verse 29 through 32, you, you see this. They, they charged them in verse 28. And then Peter said, you're exactly right. We're going to continue to do exactly what we have done. We're going to continue teaching the name of Jesus. We're going to continue to hold you accountable. And we're witnesses. We cannot stop. And so these, these uh, Sadducees and these leaders and the high priests, they were just getting enraged. 
Right? Their anger, though, wasn't something that just came on in a moment. Right? It's been building for a long time. It's been building ever since the day Jesus walked on the scene, performed miracles, and drew great crowds to follow after him. They did everything they could to destroy him. They tried to argue with him. They tried to, to catch him in, in some sort of sin. They tried to trap him in his words. Nothing worked. The crowds followed him all the more. And finally, they convinced one of his followers to betray him, put them through an unjust trial, put Jesus through an unjust trial, and then crucified him upon the cross. They thought, oh, that, that's going to work. Um, but, but even that wasn't enough. They knew that Jesus taught he was going to rise from the dead. So they pointed a guard to secure the tomb. Lest the disciples come, take away the body, and then they have this whole deceit and they're still following this guy. They just wanted to shut Jesus down. Kill him, put a guard over that tomb so his body stays there. But that that didn't work because Jesus did rise from the dead despite the security of the tomb. And and so they bribed the guards to tell this story, right? His disciples by night came and stole away the body of Jesus where they were asleep. Yeah, Yeah, do that. Say that. But that didn't work either because Jesus is alive over here talking with other people. So even this lie couldn't stop them. Jesus did rise from the dead. He did appear to the apostles. And they went forth and proclaimed the resurrection everywhere in Jerusalem. And so the religious leaders tried to stop them from from preaching. Acts 4. That's what that's about. They just warned them. That didn't work. And now in in super frustration and rage, they wanted nothing more than to see these disciples dead and to end this nightmare. That's what's happening here in verse 33. You know, I don't watch a lot of movies, but I saw a movie this week that I want to share with you a little bit. Because as I, as I researched about this text, and, and I looked about this text, I, I, I saw this movie. Um, let's see, where's this movie? Twelve Angry Men. And um, have you seen this movie before? It's a classic 1957. You've seen it, Michael, right? You were right with us. You saw it. We saw it as a family on uh, Friday night. We, we watched it. I commend it to you. It's... Uh, Older movie. David, you said it's one of the best movies ever made. Someone had it on some list of a top 100 movies ever made. It's, it's super good. And like our text this morning, it takes place in the courts. Like our text this morning, it takes place in the deliberation room of the jury. And here's this, the crux of the story. The, the, the movie tells of 12 white men who deliberate the case of an 18-year-old impoverished Puerto Rican youth accused of stabbing his father to death. So here these 12 angry white men are there and they're considering the case of this one minority boy who was accused of stabbing his father to death. And before they go into the jury room, you've got the judge and the judge instructs them if there's any reasonable doubt, they have to return a verdict of not guilty. But if found guilty, the defendant will certainly receive a death sentence. The verdict must be unanimous. You must agree whether he's guilty or not guilty. And the vast amount of the movie takes place in the room where the jury debates whether, whether its victim is, is guilty or not. And, and initially, the evidence seems super convincing. A woman in the apartment next door testified she saw through the window this boy stab his father. The old man downstairs heard them arguing upstairs and heard the son say, I'm going to kill you, and heard a thud above him on the ceiling. And, and then he went around to his door, opened the door, and he claimed he saw... This boy running from the scene of the crime. This boy had a violent past. In fact, he just purchased a switchblade of the same type was found in the murder scene, which the man who sold it said, I'd never seen a, a switchblade like this before. 
The knife was found at the scene of the crime, but it cleaned of his fingerprints, obviously a, a cover-up. And so after a quick summary of the case, they decided to seek it, take a secret ballot, guilty or not, and 11 of the jurors found the boy guilty. And there was one who said not guilty. And here's the scene in the movie where you got the, the 11 of those men looking at this juror here. His back is toward us. And they're beginning to fume in their anger at him. How can you find this not guilty? Isn't it plain? Wasn't he guilty as can be? They could not fathom that anyone considered to be guilty or not. And, and, and then, then throughout the movie, you see the anger of the different jurors come out. It's a great, it's a great study in uh, anger. And over the course of the deliberation, each man, I just in his own unique way, exhibits forth his anger. Juror 7 is anxious to use his tickets to the ball game. He wanted to get out there fast, and as things delayed, he got madder, angrier, and angrier, and angrier, because you're going to miss the ballgame. Juror 4 just demonstrates his anger towards Juror 2, when, when Juror 2 just says, I just, I just feel this way, that's what I feel. Like Juror 4 is very logical and, and, and very angry with him, because he's not thinking about it, he's just feeling about it. Juror 11 gets angry at Juror 7, because Juror 7 lacks some integrity in what he was saying. Juror 10 demonstrates his prejudice towards this minority boy in a rant about how terrible they are and how they don't even think about life and, and let those the scum rot. He deserves to die. And Juror 3 is angry with his own son, hadn't spoken with him for several years. His anger's turned then upon this accused youth. Just 12 angry men. Right? But it's also a great study in how the, the minds of people can be persuaded. Because at that initial vote, all the jurors thought him to be guilty except Juror 8. It's, it's not so much, also, it's interesting, the juror didn't think he, he was not guilty. It's just so much that he, he just wasn't quite so persuaded beyond a reasonable doubt. He just had some reasons. And, and this one man then shared some of his doubt in the case and just began to progress further and further and further. One by one, more and more jurors were brought into a reasonable doubt. They had a reasonable doubt, and they, they changed one by one from guilty to not guilty. And eventually the entire jury... 100% unanimous, persuaded. There's enough doubt in the case. The, the boy can't be declared guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's almost exactly what we see in our text today. We see one man's testimony persuade the entire jury of angry men to change their course. Not so much by declaring that the, uh, um, the boy is innocent. As, uh, hang on here. Not so much by declaring that the boy is innocent. But, but more by creating some doubt in their actions. We now see our text here. It says, one honorable man. He's introduced in verse 34. His name is Gamaliel. Look, look how Luke describes him. A Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up. And gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. Gamaliel, here's a well-respected rabbi in Israel at the time. He was the grandson of the famous Hillel. Started one of the, the strongest schools of religion, the Jewish, uh, the Jewish religion at that time. His title, by the way, was not rabbi. It was Rabban. Because just the highest of the highest were called Rabban. And he was one of the few who were esteemed this highly. He taught the Apostle Paul, Acts 22, verse 3. And by the way, the Apostle Paul may have actually been at this trial. He was at the next trial of Stephen in Acts 7, verse 58. May have been there. He may have been provided Luke with a lot of the details why Luke wrote some of these things that, that he didn't know about. 
But Luke just simply describes Gamaliel as one who was held in honor among all the people. He was an honorable man. And he counseled, verse 35, caution. He said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. And, and then Gamaliel brings up two men. The situation is similar to the apostles. He said, verse 36, he said, For before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, um, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him, here's a second example, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him, and he too perished, and all who followed him were, were scattered. So these two men, Theudas and Judas the Galilean. Now, we know nothing about Theudas other than what verse 36 says to him, about him. We don't have historical accounts. We don't really know much about him. But all we can do is discern from here. And he, he claimed to be somebody. That is, he thought himself to be great. He was a proud man, probably had a, a strong message, probably had some leadership skills. He perceived something wrong in society, probably, and then raised up this group to, to like combat it. Now, that may, may have been political. Most likely, it was probably religious. And he began to talk with others and spread his thoughts and to teach others. And he gained a following. 400 people, in his case, were, were rallying to his cause about whatever, whatever it was. And then he was killed, and the movement died out. We know a little bit more historically about Judas the Galilean because Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us his story. He rose up to protest a census that was taken by the Romans. This was not the Luke 2 census that brought Jesus to Bethlehem. Uh, this was after that, but it meant the same thing. It, it meant, it was about 6 AD when this one came, it, it meant that when you count the population, you have an accountable tax base. So it means more taxes, more money. And the, the Jews, of course, hated that. You just simply need to read the Gospels and you see how much they hated the Romans. They much, how much they hated the Romans taxing them. That's why the tax collectors were the, the worst of society. Anyway, this Jews of Galilee became a, a leader in defiance of the government. We can only imagine the crowds, uh, the rallies, uh, the defiance towards the government, towards the Romans, down with the Romans, what it, whatever he's saying. But like Theudas, he was also killed. And Josephus tells us he was killed by Roman forces. And then they were scattered. Now, having these two examples about someone that, that, that was gaining a following, he just said, you know what? It, it, just, it just died away. Once the leader died, they were, died away. He continues to advise what to do with the apostles. He basically advises laissez-faire. Hands off. Let it, let it happen. Just let it go. So that's what he's saying. Just... Just let it go. He says the crux of his argument here, verse 38. In the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it's a God, you will not be able to overthrow it. You might even be found opposing God. It's from this paragraph here, these two verses that I get my message title this morning. God's work will prevail. Because that's essentially what, what he is saying. He's saying, let the apostles alone. If it's a man, it's going to fail. Just like the revolts of Theudas and Judas, right? Both failed. But the plan of God, you cannot make it fail because God's work will prevail. And, and I'd say, you know, is this advice? Good advice? Bad advice? True? Untrue? I think it's half true. Okay, I think the first part is not true. I think the second part is true. So the, the first part, if it's a... Man, it will fail. There are many movements that are just of man. 
that have not failed. Think about major religions, right? Think about Islam, Hinduism, right? They have billions of followers. It's not like they have, I would call any of those religions failure from a human standpoint. Or, or just consider, right, uh, cults, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses. They're not from God. They haven't failed. They have millions and millions of followers. So I don't think that first half is, is exactly true if it's, of man, it will fail, though with Judas and Judas the Galilean, it did. And with many movements of man, it does eventually fail. It's not, not always true. But the second half is spot on. Verse 39, if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow it. You may even be found opposing God. God's work will prevail. So why did Gamaliel say this? I think it's because he knew the Old Testament. And I think he knew it well. The psalmist says, Psalm 115, verse 3, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. See, see, God is the one who's in charge. He does as he pleases. Anything that we do cannot thwart his plan. God's will will prevail. God's work will prevail. Daniel 4, verse 34, His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. You've got kingdoms. God's kingdom is going to endure throughout eternity. God's always going to have his kingdom. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. I am God and there's no other. I am God and there's none like me. I declare the end from the beginning, from ancient times and things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. So Gamaliel knew the Old Testament promises. That God is sovereign. He's going to establish his kingdom. When the Jews thought they were doing this very thing about thwarting the kingdom of God by by uh, or thwarting this plan of this Messiah, this Jesus, they killed him, and uh, it didn't go away like the revolt of Theudius and, and uh, um, Judas did. Instead, it, it flourished and went on because it was was of, of God, and, and even that was planned. That, that when, when they killed him, the psalmist prophesies, Psalm 2, verse 4, David does. He who sits in the heavens laughs, says, I've established my king on Zion, my holy hill. So even in destroying Jesus, the movement didn't go away. They destroyed Jesus and the movement flourished. And had Gamaliel rightly counseled, you destroy these men and it will flourish even further. Because as Tertullian says, the blood of the martyrs, the seed of the church. We're going to see that at the end of Acts chapter 7. Right? Once Stephen is stoned, it's the blood of the martyrs. The church is going to go out and boom, expand outside of Jerusalem. Gamaliel didn't know that, but he knew enough to say, if it was God, you're not going to overthrow it. So laissez-faire. And so they, they took his advice, verse 39. Now, it's interesting here. I find that Gamaliel's advice is simply one of doubt. He didn't assert that these apostles were leading a man-made movement. He didn't even assert that they were leading a God um, made movement. He just simply said, I don't know. Placed him doubt. Just like that movie, 12 Angry Men, Juror 8 just said, I don't know. I'm just doubtful a little bit. And as they, they talked it through, then they all came and just said, not guilty. They weren't sure. But he just placed just enough doubt in the minds of those in the Sanhedrin. They decided not to kill the apostles. Which, by the way, perhaps this is the seed that helped in the mind of the priests later to become obedient to the faith, which we'll look at next week, chapter 6, verse 7. The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Maybe it's Gamaliel's counsel here. 
that, that just started some doubt, caused the priests to really think about what was going on, and then they came to faith. Well, in their doubt, what they decided is, we, we don't really know, but we're going to beat these apostles, and then we will release them. Verse 40, and when they called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and to let them go. Now, the beating here, right? So, so often in the Bible, right? We just kind of read things and just, it, it just kind of comes to pass and it just, it just sort of happens and we, we, for, we forget what it means or what it meant. But here, here what it meant was that according to the law, probably the custom was 40 stripes minus one. Was how many kids help me? 40 stripes minus one is 39, maybe. All right, well, good, good, 39. And so picture the apostles, right? I, I, I thought about trying to model this. They, they, they probably took some kind of whip or maybe some kind of stick or some kind of, uh, of switch or some type. And so picture the apostles here, right? They, they're, they're taken and, and, and you take their... Their, their upper garments off. You lay them bare. Some guy takes out some sort of stick. I just found this hanging around the church. And, and, then, and then here he goes. That was only four. Something like that. 39 times in the back of the... But you, you need to realize that. I mean, you can just... How many of you just kind of read through that? Oh, they, they just beat them and then they, they went out. That gives you an idea about what was happening. The apostles, what would have happened to the back? Bloody, bleeding, sores, aching, open wounds, maybe some broken bones, muscles all out of whack. Sleeping that night would have been very difficult. The idea here was the pain that the disciples got would deter them from future speaking. But did that happen? No, it did not happen. In verse 41, we see 12 happy men. <clears throat> they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Rather than downcast, sorrowful, crying, weeping men, they went away happy. They weren't sorrowful. They were joyful. In fact, that's the, the word here used in uh, verse 41. It says that they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Not rejoicing in their suffering as if they were, were some sort of masochist who, who likes the pain that, that came upon them. But, but they, were, they were rejoicing in that they were suffering dishonor just like their Lord and Master was. Christ was dishonored. He was beaten and shamed. And now these disciples joined in their master's shame. They, they knew well that a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. And they knew that, that Jesus was beaten. And so as they are, are beaten, they're becoming more and more like Jesus. And in that, they rejoiced. And then they're getting scars. These scars would be scars of honor. When Paul said in Galatians 6, 17, that I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. He's certainly talking about the marks that he received from being beaten for the sake of Jesus. These scars were honor scars like men of the military who return home. 
Right? Some kind of scar, some kind of maybe a bomb exploded and their faces off, or maybe they lost some fingers or some limbs, or maybe they forever walk with a limp. That's a limp of honor. That, that's, that's a face of honor to serve our nation and, and to fight and only to come back with scars on your face, scars in your body. When Richard Wormbrand came to America, I told you about his testimony a couple of weeks ago. He then was brought before the Senate, uh, before the International Security Subcommittee. And, and when he was there, they asked him about his, his beating. And he took off his shirt at that, uh, at that meeting because he was asked to. And he showed some of the scars from the beating that he had received. He even just showed one there that still, years later, still an open wound and a scar that he received from his beating. And, and he, he wrote later about that. He says, the underground worker, the one who works in a persecuting con- country, must know that he belongs to the body of Christ. He belongs to a body that's been flogged for nearly 2,000 years. It's always been flogged. Not only on Golgotha, but under the Roman emperors and by so many persecutions. It's been flogged under the Nazis. It's been flogged in Russia for over 70 years. And when converted, I have consciously become part of a body that is a flogged body, a mocked body, a body spat upon, and one crowned with a crown of thorns with nails driven into the hands and the feet. And these disciples received those very scars. They were, they were as, as, as happy as a decorated military hero would be, who would receive stars upon his chest for his military honor and what he did. But rather than stars upon his chest, he received, they received scars upon their back. At this moment, they became like Jesus, suffering shame for his name. Because there is joy in persecution. If people speak to you wrongly for the name of Christ, you will find joy in that. Uh, Richard Wormbrand tells about his persecution. I just want to read just a couple of uh, a couple paragraphs in this book. Again, I, I talked about it two weeks ago. I talk about it here again. He says, It was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners as it is in captive nations today. <clears throat> He's talking about being in prison, and they, they spoke. He says, It was understood that whoever was caught preaching to other prisoners would receive a severe beating. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching. So we accepted their terms. It was a deal. We preached and they beat us. We were happy preaching and they were happy beating us. So everyone was happy. He said the following scene happened more times than I can remember. A brother was preaching to other prisoners when the guards suddenly burst in, surprising him halfway through a phrase, and they hauled him down to the corridor to the beating room. After what seemed like an endless beating, they brought him back and threw him bloody and bruised on the prison floor and slowly picked up his battered body, painfully straightened his clothing and said, Now, brethren, where did I leave off when I was interrupted? He continued this gospel message. He says, I have seen beautiful things. Um, He speaks here also about the joy of prison. He says, when I look back on my 14 years of prison, it was occasionally a very happy time. Other prisoners and even the guards often wondered at how happy Christians could be under the most terrible circumstances. We could not be prevented from singing, although we were beaten for this. And I imagine the nightingales, too, would sing, even if they knew that after finishing, they'd be killed for it. Christians in prison danced for joy. 
Not because prison was so wonderful and, and so enjoyable. Not because Christians right, love right, being beaten on the flesh and love pain. Not because Christians are cutting themselves for the sake of, of feeling this pain. That's not what it is at all. It's the joy of confirmation that you're one of Christ's disciples. Suffering in line a long host of righteous people. Jesus promised this, Matthew chapter 5, 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So as they were beaten, they were reminded of the ways in which they were connected to the godly men of old, the godly prophets of old who had been beaten and persecuted for the sake of righteousness. And this, by the way, also helps us as Christians when we are maligned and we're slandered and bad things are said about us when when the truth is otherwise. We can find great comfort in that. We can find great joy in that because Christ was misunderstood. Christ's words were twisted. And he, he rejoiced through it, and so we can rejoice through it as well. And, and we see even in verse 42, they didn't, didn't stop their preaching in any way. In, in every day, it says, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They, they, they went to the temple. They went house to house. Every day they did this. This was just their habit, that they went out all around. You could not shut these guys up. Not beatings, not warnings. Not even death, as we shall see in Acts chapter 7. So really, my, my question of application is this, is, is what do you fear in talking to others about Jesus? What do you fear? A little American rejection? A little, <laughs> a little being misunderstood? I just say this. You want some joy in your life? Then talk and speak with others. And let them reject you. And as they reject you, right? They're, they're not rejecting you, but who are they rejecting? They're rejecting God. Remember when uh, uh, Israel asked God to, to make him a king, asked Samuel to make him a king? Samuel's message to them was, uh, God's message to Samuel was basically, don't worry about them. They've not rejected you. They've rejected me as king. And, and so likewise, right, when we speak of Jesus, right, it's not, it's not us they reject. They're rejecting Jesus. And so it goes back to him. Any, any dishonor we get is simply the dishonor that Jesus got. We serve a dishonored Lord. We, we, uh, Christianity is different than Islam. Muslim is an honor religion. It's all about honor. And so to dishonor a Muslim, right, you're going to fight back. But for us, our Lord was dishonored. And so we don't fight back. We take it and we understand that this is part of the suffering of Christ. So let's pray as we then transition to the, the Lord's Supper. I just want to close our message here. Oh, Father, I would pray, God, in your mercy, in your, in your grace... God, that you would help us and strengthen us. God, to realize that, that beating is not such a bad thing or a rejection is not such a bad thing. It ought not to be feared. We ought to go forth in grace, speaking, speaking words to others of the glories of Jesus. We're called to be your witnesses. And Father, I pray that you would strengthen us, O oh God, for that task. God, you would help us to see, even in perspective, that, that your church will prevail. God, that you will accomplish all of your work. And God, you call us simply to open your mouth, 
open our mouths. And so, God, I pray that you would strengthen us in those ways and help us to open our mouths for the, the glory of Christ. Help us be bold. Help us realize that suffering can bring joy. Beatings and rejection can bring joy because we know that we're one of yours. So in that we do rejoice. Strengthen us, O God, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.